Well, this morning, um, I do want to finish up our little mini-series on um, our identity statement as Deep River Friends Meeting. And I appreciate you uh, listening, for those who've been able to hear it for the last two Sundays, kind of indulging it. You know, I think it's important to kind of check in as to who we are. We, we know how important our identities are individually, who we are, where, where our actions evolve from, and what defines us. And I think as a, as a meeting, it's good to check in on that. In your bulletin, you have, um, on the right-hand side, uh, the statement, Deep River Friends Meeting, is a Christ-centered community gathered around the leadership of the living Christ. That was the first Sunday or the first message we looked at. Um, being a Christ-centered community, uh, being led by Christ under the leadership of Christ who is present among us. Very simply, Christ is our teacher. We listen to the living Christ. He is the one that guides us in everything. We seek to live in the way of Jesus through our faithfulness to his leadings and our Quaker testimonies of simplicity, peace, integrity, community, equality, and service. In other words, we walk in the way of Jesus, and we live out these fruits, fruits, which includes these testimonies, which I just mentioned, our Quaker testimonies. We have the roots and the fruits, as we like to say. Christ is the living root that we're connected to. Christ is divine. We are the branches. And the fruits of our life are these testimonies, among other things, and the fruit of the Spirit. But this morning we want to focus on this next statement to finish up. We have no greater allegiance than the kingdom of God. And we have no greater privilege than serving our community and making God's love real. Now those two sentences can pack a lot. Especially the idea or the understanding of the kingdom of God. In two of the four Gospels... Matthew and Mark. In those Gospels, Jesus begins his ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Luke doesn't necessarily mention it that way. Luke begins Jesus' ministry with him quoting a portion of Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and, 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 and saying, now this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is happening right now. And John never uses the term the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven but he does use the term eternal life, that Jesus has come to give us eternal life, which is a, a kind of quality of experiencing God's presence in the here and now, God's active reign among us. So they may have used different language, the gospel writers, but the idea was still the same. The notion of the kingdom of God is Jesus' central message, and it is the gospel, it is the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. Repent, for the good news is here. Now the kingdom of God, that's a word that we don't often use again. This would have been very familiar to the people at that time. When you think kingdom, think government, think rule, think reign. The kingdom would have been um, a, a, a word that would have would have. Uh, would have clicked in their head and they would have thought of a state of government that had a king as its head. In the case of the people at that time under Roman occupation, Tiberius was the emperor during Jesus' ministry. So in that sense, Tiberius was king of his kingdom, the Roman Empire, and he demanded allegiance. Now we'll get to that in a few moments. But what's interesting is if you read a little bit of history around that time, What's fascinating is 
the kind of allegiance that Jesus invites his followers to undertake is almost the same kind of allegiance the Roman emperor would have invited his people in the land to undertake as well. In other words, allegiances matter. And just maybe when Jesus entered into his ministry, just maybe when he began his ministry, he knew what he was doing, and I say that with my tongue on my cheek somewhat, that there is a new kingdom that is here. There is a new reign, there is a new rule that is among us. It is the reign and rule of God. And essentially what he is saying is you have a choice to make. You can either follow the reign and rule of Tiberius. You can either follow the present reign and rule of whatever is offered in the world. Or you can follow God and you can follow me and God's reign or rule. Now listen to this oath of allegiance that many Romans, especially those who did business in the land, were often required to take. Quote, I swear to Zeus, earth, sun, all the gods and goddesses, and to Augustus himself, that I will be loyal to Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants all through my life, both in word, deed, and thought, holding as friends those they hold as friends, and considering those as enemies whom they judge to be such. That with regard to things that concern them, I will not be sparing of my body or my soul or my life or children, but will face every peril with respect to things that affect them. If there is anything that I should recognize or hear as spoken, plotted, or done contrary to this, I will report this and be an enemy of the person speaking, plotting, or doing any of these things. Whomever they judge to be enemies, I will pursue and defend against them by land and sea with arms and steel. If I should do anything contrary to this oath or fail to follow up what I have sworn, I impose a curse upon myself, encompassing the destruction and total extension of my body, soul, life, children, my entire family, and everything essential, down to every successor and every descendant of mine. And may neither earth nor sea receive the bodies of my family and descendants, nor bear fruit for them." That is total commitment. That's what the Romans asked for. That's what Tiberius asked for. I need your allegiance. No, I require your allegiance. And this is what it has to be. You gave your life totally over to them. Do you see how radical it is when Jesus came on the scene and said and announced, the kingdom of God is at hand. You have the kingdom of Tiberius, but I offer you a different kingdom. He's saying there is a different kingdom. There is a new kingdom. There is a, a kingdom other than the Roman kingdom. It is the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, and it asks for your allegiance. And so Jesus says, repent, which is a way of saying, rethink, reimagine how life can be how it can go in a different direction and follow me. I haven't done enough studying on this. I was just sort of contemplating this this morning, but as I reread this whole, this whole uh, oath, which I would have had to have on a card, I don't think I could have memorized the whole thing, I began to wonder, well, maybe, just maybe, the Lord's Prayer was kind of an alternative one a prayer of allegiance to God's kingdom. Maybe that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. You've got this 
big oath that you swear to Tiberius. I just want to know yes or no. That's all you have to say. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to give you a different prayer to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's God's active rule. It's God's active reign. And God invites us to rethink our lives and give our allegiance completely to God's rule, to God's reign, and God's kingdom. One author, Dallas Willard, describes it this way. God's kingdom is God in action. It is God reigning. It is the reign of God, but it is not static. It is active. It is what God is doing where we are. That is the kingdom that we seek. And so the kingdom of God, it's not a kingdom of power. It's not a kingdom of vengeance. It's not a kingdom of enemy making or violence that it would have been for the Romans. It is, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, it is a kingdom of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Or the kingdom of God is, as one person put it, God's dream society on earth in which those who pledge allegiance to this society pledge to live lives of peace, of joy, of goodness, of patience, of kindness, of servanthood, and love. And they pledge to live, live, to live lives of loving one's enemy, of going the extra mile with the unlovable and those you despise. They, they pledge to welcome the outsider and the marginalized, to look after the oppressed and the under-resourced, to help make things right in a world that often feels as if many things are going wrong. This is the different kind of kingdom that Jesus is inviting people to be part of. The kingdom of heaven is at hand when something is at hand. It is here now. It's in the present. God's act of rule and reign. Jesus said, I need for you to make a choice. This is why I think Jesus had such really ostentatious kinds of statements to people where you'd say to people, he had invited them to follow the kingdom and somebody said, I need to go bury my family. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. One guy said, I've got some stuff I need to plow. He says, well, you know, you can't keep plowing and looking back. You've got to come follow me. I think what Jesus was saying is there's always going to be an excuse There's always going to be something else. I need to know. Your heart needs to know. Who has your allegiance? This is how we can better understand the term Lord. In a kingdom, again to use that language, in a kingdom a Lord is someone who has power. They have authority. They have influence. And so Jesus says to his disciples after teaching them about life in the kingdom, he says to them one day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I think he's actually using the language of the kingdom of Rome at that time. He says, you know, the kingdom of Rome and this empire, the lords can tell you what to do, and you'll do it. That's how it operates. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? I'm inviting you into that same kind of of relationship to know Jesus as Lord is to know him as the one who has the ultimate authority and influence in our life it's to have as our ultimate allegiance the reign and rule of God and the ultimate response the ultimate is simply doing what Jesus says as someone once wrote kind of in a tongue in cheek fashion maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about maybe he was right now, when we feel all of this kingdom language, we think, wow, this just feels like another, another kind of drudgery. It just feels like another kind of burden. But remember this. Follow the language of Jesus. 
Later in his ministry, as John records, he says this to his disciples. I no longer call you servants. But what does he say? I call you friends. You are now my friends because everything God has given to me, I give to you. This is not a relationship in which I browbeat you. This is not a relationship in which I, I make life intentionally hard for you. This is a relationship in which I pour my love out to you and everything that God has given to me, I'm going to give to you. We are friends together. And this is how he says the world will know you are my disciples, by how you love one another. We have no greater allegiance than the kingdom of God, and we have no greater privilege than serving our community and making God's love real. Jesus gave us two commands, love God, love your neighbor. And then he said, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. There are 613 commands. All 611 hang on these two, love God and love your neighbor. Now John understood this when he wrote, beloved, Let us love one another because love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. I think Paul understood this because he wrote to the first Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things. I can hear Paul saying, don't make love theoretical. It's right here with the people that you live. Love matters. Make God's love real. I don't know if Jesus hashtagged it like I did, but I think he would have. Make God's love real. And then I think the disciple Peter understood it. I know he understood it. Peter was the one that denied Jesus three times. And later on in his his journey, later on in his life, Peter writes these words. Above all, he says, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Do you think Peter just kind of reflectively thought when he wrote that? And he thought to himself, I can't imagine why Jesus ever restored me. I can't imagine why he ever loved me again. And so as he penned these words, he just wrote, love covers a multitude of sins. Author Scott McKnight, he understands love when he writes this, quote, the kingdom is a kingdom of love. From the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep, whether we're searching for or have found our soulmate, whether we're working or playing or traveling, whether we're wondering what God designed for us to accomplish in this world, whether we are serving in a homeless shelter, whether we're pouring coffee into espresso cups, or our various dreams have their meaning only when they're enveloped by loving God and loving others. When we live in love, we live in the kingdom society Jesus came to create. This whole kingdom of God stuff, I think, was so hard, at least, for people to kind of, if you're a linear person, it's kind of hard to to put it into words. So Jesus gave us stories. If you want to read a story that encapsulates all the kingdom of God is about, read the story of the prodigal son, the wayward son. Read that story and embrace it and know that every time we return, God is waiting for us with open arms and open love. When we squander our life away, like the son did, we are always 
welcomed back. That is the kingdom, always welcoming people back. So our statement says we have no greater privilege than serving our community and making God's love real. What does that look like? Well, we make God's love real when we offer folks a listening and caring presence and we check up on them. We make God's love real when we advocate and work for justice and we give our best energies to make things right in our world and our community. We make God's love real when we show up in this world as peacemakers and we live our lives as agents of reconciliation. We make God's love real when we forgive, when we apologize. Sometimes it's simple as saying, I'm sorry. We make God's love real when we pray for one another and we act on our prayers. We We make God's love real when we embrace those who feel as if they are no longer embraceable due to their past. And I'll just say a side note there. There are plenty of people who live in that condition. That somehow they feel they are way beyond redemption. They're so buried deep in their shame and their guilt that they just feel they can no longer be embraced. But God's love embraces them through us even through their failures and their shame. We make God's love real when we come alongside others in a very patient manner. We promise to be with them, even if they don't have it all together, even if they never get it all together. We come alongside with them. We make God's love real when we replace our rudeness with hospitality and we offer gracious civility. We make God's love real when we accept others as they are and we commit ourselves to helping them become all God intends for them to be. And I wonder this, Just last night, what if I started each day with this statement, I will make God's love real by, and then I just finished it by smiling at others, by saying thank you to others, by calling so-and-so on the phone and apologizing to them, by apologizing to the one that I live with who, who, who needs to hear an apology from me. I will make God's love real by. How would you finish that sentence or that statement? Today, maybe tomorrow. There's a book of prayers by an author named John Bailey, written years ago. And I want to close with this one prayer that he wrote. It's kind of a litany, which means since you don't have a copy of it, I'm going to have to read your part. But he reads, he takes a portion of the Sermon on the Mount and he kind of does this liturgy back and forth and then he finishes up with the Lord's Prayer. So let me share this with you. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. Jesus said, strive for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. Jesus said, do good and lend, expecting to get nothing in return. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. Jesus said, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. And Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. Oh God, move my heart to follow in this way. And then maybe, just maybe, in place of that oath of allegiance I read earlier in the sermon, maybe, just maybe, Jesus said, and I've got something else for you. I want you to pray this. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Allegiances matter. They matter for me, they matter for you, and they matter for us. Who is my allegiance with? Who do I pledge my allegiance to? Which kingdom do I align myself with? That's what Jesus asks. The kingdom of love awaits us. And then he says, go, make God's love real.